Hey everyone, I'm Hunter Molson, and we're here today with another episode of Breaking Boundaries by Barbell Apparel. I have the pleasure of sitting down today with Nicodemus De La Rosa. He is an incredible athlete. Uh, I've known of him for a number of years. He's worked with some of my staff at Barbell Apparel and helped train them for ultra marathons and other extreme distance running. Uh, himself as an athlete has has achieved quite a lot in terms of the ultra distance running. Um, he was the youngest finisher of the Badwater 135 at 19. Uh, he's done the Spartan Death Race. He finished the Hurt 100 in sixth place, uh, third place at the Barkley Marathons, first place and 13th place finisher um, in the race's 25 plus year history at the Fuego Iagua 100 kilometer, uh, first place at Italy's Tour de Chiant. I hope I'm saying that yeah. right. Uh, second place at uh, Canada's Fat Dog 120 miler. Uh, first place at the CR Orca 100. And he just completed the uh, world's toughest mutter at sixth place overall. Uh, Nicodemus, it is great to have you today. And it seems like you like torturing yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a fun time to get out there and do these uh, really difficult races and everything like that. It's a good... Uh good place to practice with, uh, with what you got in the mind and everything like that. So it's always fun puzzles to solve. Yeah. One, I think, you know, a lot of people probably perceive those extreme distance or, or, or those extreme, uh, endurance feats of athleticism as like a high degree of, of mental fortitude, but there's a, there's a lot of physical, there's a lot of physicality that goes into it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm able to do these things because of the 70 to 90 mile weeks that, you know, my, my wife, my wife coaches me, um, that she, you know, she has me putting out and everything and the, the years and years of aerobic, uh, training that I've aggregated, um, certainly are, are what allow me the, the pedestal that I stand on to be able to do and launch into these events and stuff. Definitely. It's not, it's not all entirely mental, but, uh, but the mentality is a big, big component. Yeah, it's like um, I engage in a lot of outdoor activities and, and things that sometimes demand extremely long days. And I don't have nearly the cardiovascular endurance foundation that someone like you does. And it's like I'm, I'm fairly mentally tough because I've spent a long time doing these things. But I'll definitely, you know, there's certain distances that are way, way less that, than you're doing where I'll just hit like a physical wall. And basically like I'm dragging myself, uh, you know, back to my car at that point. And yeah. so it's like you could be as mentally tough as you want to be, but if you don't have the the rest of the athletic foundation, the mental toughness isn't enough on its own. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you on that for sure. Yeah. Um, I've had a, a lot of athletes that are, uh, come from hunting backgrounds often or something like that, who will be used to kind of those big days and stuff like that. And then, and then, um, they'll, it's just something else to translate to be able to do a 50 K eventually, or to be able to run a full 31 miles to actually yeah. be able to, there's, there's definitely a jump between, you know, being on your feet for, all day and doing a 20, 30 mile backpacking trip and then actually running that distance in a four to five hour period um, and developing that capacity to be able to, you know, just consistently clock eight to nine minute miles. It's, it takes a while. It takes a while for people to be able to gain that ability to be able to run eight to nine minute miles for long, long periods of time. Yeah, definitely. And I guess something I'd love to talk about is first, I'd love to give the listeners uh, a little bit of a background on your athletic development as a child, how you got into kind of like this um, medium of extreme distance sports, extreme endurance sports, and then also kind of your opinion on what what comes together to make a competitive or a successful athlete in these, in these types of fields. Because I guess like my perception would be that um, like, like and, and maybe you'll correct me, maybe I'm wrong, but my perception would be that like no one no one that's uh, having success or, or longevity in these 
these kind of extreme distance runs just like wakes up one day and like, you know, like athletes might find like, Hey, I'm really good at football or I'm really good at, at, at lifting or something like that. But no one just wakes up and is good at running a hundred miles. It's something that really has to be fostered. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely something that's developed over time. Um, and, and, and I'll describe kind of my, my journey of how I found the hundred miler. Um, <clears throat> And that was essentially, you know, in, in terms of my early childhood experience with sport and everything like that, it was, you know, your typical peewee baseball, peewee football kind of thing uh, while my parents were together and everything like that. And then they got divorced around the age of 11 and I went to go live with my mom. And my mom is a uh, mechanism for sort of getting over the divorce, getting through uh, her emotions and everything like that, decided to sign up for and go run a marathon. She had done a little bit of track and stuff like that in high school and had been pretty good at that. Um, had wanted to dabble around with it in college, but got pregnant with me instead. And, um, and so decided to go do a, uh, a marathon, you know, um, uh, shortly after my parents divorce. And in doing that, um, I really got to see this like transformation in her post marathon. That was just this glee and this like, Oh, I can take on the world kind of like just, just so powerful. She looks so powerful and everything like that. And I really, you know, kind of, kind of lost and not certain of what had happened to my family and everything like that. We were in California now versus, uh, the, um, uh, support site in Italy and the military and, um, you know, living in California, I, I needed something to, some, something to grasp on or something to be able to do that was like, uh, some, some sort of form or identity. And it, and it looked from watching my mom do that marathon. Like, this is the thing, this is the thing that I need to go grasp onto and do. Um, I was, 13 at the time when I watched her do that. And, uh, I tried, I applied to the marathon and I asked, you know, Hey, can I, can I come join the marathon? Um, and then got rejected my first time, uh, cause I was too young and then applied again when I was 15. Um, for whatever reason they let me in when I was 15 years old. And so I ran my first marathon at the age of 15, uh, which was the rock and roll marathon. Um, and then, uh, yeah. Um, oh, what's it called? Um, ran that and then kind of simultaneously I was doing cross country and everything like that, but I wasn't, I, I needed to, there was this growing sort of, uh, I mean, I know what it comes from. It comes from uh, childhood emotional neglect. Um, and that was a whole nother thing we can get into there exactly, but just, uh, not getting about growing up into this with a single mother and not getting the attention I needed, wanted, whatever it was, I was looking for attention from external sources and external validation. And so if I was going to be a part of the cross country team, I really needed to stand out. I needed to win. I needed to be first place. I needed to be lauded. I needed to be noticed. Um, and I was an average cross country runner. I didn't stand out. And so that sort of pushed me to continue pursuing, continue exploring these further distances, continue exploring, uh, you know, well, maybe, you know, if I can't win the, the 5k or whatever it is, or, you know, I can't beat my friends at the 5k, maybe, uh, maybe I can go do this marathon thing. Um, and then I'd heard my senior year of high school, my friends were bantering back and forth about the bad water ultra marathon or the scene, the senior kids were and they were like, oh yeah, this is a crazy race out in, out in Death Valley. It's like 135 miles and you go run it in 130 degree weather. It sounds absolutely nuts. And I was like, you know, something kind of clicked in the back of my head that, that was like, you know, okay, I may never be able to beat you in a 5k, but I bet you I probably have enough grit to like go do that 135 miles. That doesn't sound that bad. I just have to run for forever. And, um, and for whatever reason, yeah, uh, that kind of clicked in my head. And then I had a situation where, um, at the age of, 
17, 18, my, my senior year in high school, I had a friend who was diagnosed with a, um, uh, kind of a rare form of leukemia and the, uh, project that I decided to do for him was where I'd run 3000 miles over the course of 10 months for uh, the 10 months that school was. And I'd try to fundraise uh, X amount of money for him while, while running a bunch. And as sort of a media stunt, I decided I'd run a hundred miles around a high school track. And that was my first hundred miler, um, was doing, you know, that hundred miles around the high school track. Again, if you're kind of following the, the, the chain of, um, psychology here, this is an event. This is something I can do that makes me stand out above my peers that, that really, uh, says, Hey, notice me, notice me externally validate me. Um, which I really, really, really needed at the time. And <clears throat> you'll kind of see that psychological thread, uh, throughout my early career or early to mid career in my sport, um, where I'm pursuing events such as, uh, Badwater, uh, Arrowhead 135, um, death race stuff that is like not, not entirely obscure, but where I can kind of create my own category, where I can kind of be the youngest person in the world to go complete this and win this thing, where I can maybe even win the event if it's obscure enough. Um, you know, the Barkley marathons at the time in 2011, when I first went there in 2012 and then 2013, when I finished, didn't have that much fame to it yet or anything. It wasn't this infamous, you know, Netflix documentary. Everybody knows about it. Uh, you, you're asked if you do ultra marathons and they ask if you've done the Barkley, uh, which it is now. Um, and, um, and so I was, I, I kind of found my, my niche, my niche per se in, in these like world's most difficult events. And, uh, at the time, especially throughout my, my early to mid career, um, you know, 135 miles, uh, by the time, especially I, that I was 20 and the second time that I'd done bad water, the pain of pursuing 135 miles across the desert and giant blisters and 130, 135 degree heat and miles and endless miles of pavement and stuff like that was nowhere near as bad as the potential pain or the potential fear of a lack of self-worth or a lack of self-identity that I would have felt, uh, had I, had I failed that event or had I not been able to accomplish bad water and I would have failed, uh, and lost my self-worth. Uh, that would have been far more painful. And, and essentially at that point in my early to mid career, I had attached my entire, uh, identity and my entire self-worth to completing these. So there's an earful, um, probably tangential to the original question there, but, uh, at least dipping into some of the question. <laughs> no, I think that's an, an amazing amount of background. And, and, uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll dive more into the psychological component, also the physical component as we progress the conversation. Um, but I think thematically that you, there, there are some kind of like three lines, with other extreme endurance athletes, I mean, athletes of all type, but it seems like the extreme endurance athletes specifically um, tend, many of them tend to have kind of like this inner turmoil where the, uh, the physical pursuit is like an outward reflection of like inner, inner workings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think like kind of going back to what I was, the, the point I was formulating as we began the conversation is that it's like, you know, a lot of athletics uh, usually a young person will under, they'll be exposed to a certain sport and figure out like, Oh, Hey, I have a knack for this. Um, you know, and they kind of, they kind of like, it's a self-reinforcing thing. It's like, well, I'm good at it. So I'll keep doing it. I'm doing it. So I get better at it. And it kind of like self-perpetuates. And then you have an NFL player or something like that, mm -hmm. obviously a totally. dramatic oversimplification, but it's like with the endurance sports, it's, it's not that right. Like no one, no one wakes up and they're like, huh, I'm really good at running a hundred miles. It's, yeah. it's kind of like you said, where it's like, there's something different going on to where 
you know that you can out suffer somebody or you can, yeah. um, <clears throat> like you said, achieve this notoriety and prove something like for you, maybe it was proving getting, like you said, getting that external validation for other people doing this kind of like Iron Man's or other, you know, Iron Man's kind of like, yeah on the lower end of the spectrum compared to the rest of these events, but they're doing these things to prove something to themselves. Um, and, it, and it's more kind of like that, that, Hey, I, I'm going to prove something here as opposed to like, Hey, I'm just good at this. So I'm going to keep pursuing it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I kind of call it, you know, you look at like these, uh, some of these races and it's like, you know, they, they get titles like world's most difficult, uh, death race, um, you know, bad water. They have these gnarly titles or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I really per, uh, perceive it in some ways, uh, you know, the, the hard thing, I've got this book sitting here in front of me by, um, this is a uh, Steve Magnus wrote this one, uh, do hard things. Um, and, and the hard thing back when I was, um, you know, in cross country in high school would have been to stay in cross country in high school would have been to do track and field. Uh, the path of least resistance, strangely was going and running a hundred miler was going and running bad water. That was the path of least resistance. That was the least competitive, most, uh, high reward, uh, area that I could have gone to the most competitive, uh, least rewarding, least ego granting thing I could have done would have been to stay mediocre, stay like, uh, pretty good, but not great in track and field or something like that, which I, which I kind of regret having never done. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure part <laughs> of that is, um, truth. And part of that is that like, as much as your motivations for running those extreme distances, um, may have been, you know, muddled in a bunch of other factors. Uh, a lot of people, even if they, I, I guess the way I would say is like a lot of people, even if they wanted to do it, wouldn't, they, they would have, they would have progressed down that path. And many people would realize that they didn't want it that bad and they would have stopped, mm, you know what I totally. mean? So the yeah. fact that you, that, that you saw like, okay, I can go do these things and still followed through and actually did them. Um, it's still, it's still like, you know, maybe you perceive it as like, oh, this was the path of least resistance. And yeah. maybe that's unique to your own like mental fortitude or genetic makeup or whatever. But I think I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty self-deprecating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's probably plenty of people who would have said like, you know what? I want, I want this notoriety. I'm going to go run the bad water. And they would have gotten like halfway to training and been like, I can't do this. It's like, nah, I'm just going to make some cool social media posts instead. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I um, like I, I can guarantee you as cool as it seems like I am never going to run that far. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Um, so you gave a little bit of background of the track and field uh, you were running in high school and you, you mentioned that you ran your first hundred mile or around the high school track um, and progressing from your marathon to that, I guess, like, I guess first question, when you run that first marathon at uh, 15, do you remember what your time was? Yeah, of course. Uh, I was right in front of a uh, a guy dressed up in a banana suit, and I was three hours and twenty nine minutes. So uh, I, I beat that, the banana. I beat the banana. That, that's <laughs> but, a yeah. really that's a really strong outing for your first marathon. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was a good. Uh, I, was, yeah. I was pretty happy with it. Yeah, for sure. And so, I mean, in 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 some respects, for sure, you 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 feel like you're genetically predisposed or gifted to run. Yeah, I, I have a pretty decent, like I would say, definitely above average in terms of uh, my marathon endurance ability, my genetic sort of makeup in my body. I've got, a, I've got, I want to say I've got pretty thick bones. Uh, my mom's able to; uh, she recently fell off a 
a horse um and uh you know bless her soul or whatever didn't didn't hurt anything other i mean she messed up her back a bit um she was she was out for a little bit for that but because of our thick bones you know i've never had shin splints i've never had uh really bad injuries or anything like that so sort of that that thicker bone density um really has allowed me to aggregate a lot a lot of miles uh which is one one thing i have going for me yeah for sure and i mean I, i suppose in the nature of this sport it's like your ability to accrue volume is probably, you know, predictive of success. Like if your body can't hold up to training, you're not going to be able to get enough training done to really be successful at these events. Yeah, absolutely. And that was, that was a big area that, uh, originally when, um, I first got into coaching about six years ago, um, an area that I turned to was uh, gait and movement analysis and looking at like form and mechanics and stuff like that. I just come off of a, now that I've just said, I didn't get injuries. I had a bad knee injury at the time. Um, and uh, studied movement mechanics and stuff, and running form and running efficiency, which uh, which Kyle and Josh will know a little bit from the work I've done with them. And um, yeah, um, st- studied that for a little while. That's that's cool. Um, and so you ran that first marathon, and then how how long was it from running that marathon to running the hundred miler at high school? We're looking about. So I ran that marathon as a freshman in high school, and then and then ran the hundred milers as a senior in high school. So about you know four years between the two. Did you do anything specifically to prep for that hundred miler, or did you just kind of go for it? Yeah, at, at that point, I was already running that three thousand miles over the span of ten months, and so to run three thousand miles in ten months, you've got to average around seventy to seventy-five miles per week, and so I was already running a ton. I was already running, you know, okay. a, a half marathon every morning. Um, and so by the time that marathon came, or hundred miler came around, I was like, okay, kind of just doing it all at once versus over the span of a week. Um, but I mean, it yeah. still, you know, laid me out. It was still ridiculously difficult. It was still, you know, at mile like 80, wanting to fall asleep and just collapse and everything like that. The first time trying to go all the way through the night like that and everything. Um, and then I remember just, you know, mile, um, kind of like you know when you when you when you got to pee or whatever it is and, and you're you're like five miles away from your house and you, you don't have to pee that or don't have to pee that bad but the closer you get the more you have to pee and it was like the closer i got to the mile 100 the more and more fatigued i was kind of thing i'm sorry to use pee as a metaphor there but um everybody no, yeah, feeling at least mean. and um and uh yeah the closer i got the more fatigued i was and everything like that until that last like quarter mile i remember i had my friends like sort of post me up as i sort of limped my last like quarter mile into the hundredth the hundredth mile there for my first time and that was a really special yeah it was was a neat time yeah i mean that's that's a crazy achievement especially at such a young age i mean at any age really but uh i guess like now in retrospect that you've done a ton of these things um how how is how is running that event on a track as a as opposed to like an open course Mm, i don't i don't know you know you you think it, it, it's interesting, um, you know, uh, going back to sort of psychology with uh, with Viktor Frankl, he talks about uh, in Man's Search for Meaning, he talks a lot about, um, you know, you can get through anything if something has a purpose, if, if you can prescribe a deep enough why, you'll figure out your how. Um, and in, in that sense, you know, I was fundraising for a friend at the time um, who, who had cancer and my belief was that, you know, by doing this, I can, I can get a lot of people to bet. And the idea was, you know, give me a dollar for every lap that I run. And, you know, I'd cl- I'll collect a bunch of $400 donations. Awesome. I guess it's 400 laps around the high school track. And, um, what's it called? And so it was like, I had a deeper purpose. I had a deeper meaning for doing it. Uh, you know, if I tried to just go run a hundred miles around a high school track currently for no reason, uh, yeah, I, w- I would burn out. I'd get really bored. Uh, it would be extremely boring. Uh, but if there was a deeper purpose or a deeper reason that I was doing it, uh, you know, I could probably do it. Um, 
But versus an open course, you know, what do I just blatantly between the two of those, which one do I prefer more? Yeah, a point to point hundred miler that goes through gorgeous mountains or something like that, or a loop hundred miler that goes through gorgeous mountains in some sort of like fall weather would be the preferred. Yeah. Not through the desolation of Death Valley while it's a hundred plus degrees or whatever. That's got um, its own beauty though too. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> now Death Valley does have its own beauty, but it for I you know, being in Las Vegas, I'm nearby, I've been there many oh, yeah. time. It just gets brutally hot. And oh, yeah. the heat, like the heat you see on the weather readout doesn't like beguile the nature of the heat because yeah. there's also nothing to like <clears throat> absorb it or vent it off. It's just like scorched earth. So yeah. it just like hits the ground and bounces right back up. Oh, know? it's brutal. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I remember um, that because because they're mean because the uh, thermometer that the uh, that the weather reports give you is all always taken in the shade, if I remember, and so like and the actual sun, which doesn't count as temperature, I guess it's always like one forty or one forty five in the actual sun. Yeah, and it's like oh yeah, it's yeah. it'll suck the life right out of you. Yeah, for sure. And then like you know you people you know if people live in a more you know vegetative climate, they don't you don't realize that like all of the trees and shrubbery or grass or whatever they they sink the heat and so it's not mm. like it's bouncing right off but the ground there in death valley it just absorbs it like a like a pizza stone in an oven you know what i mean right so right, right, like right 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 the ground itself is radiating that heat right back up to you. yeah so it's like, i can't because it's mostly just i can't imagine so yeah yeah um but no i thought actually the the point you were making about the purpose behind the 100 mile you ran in high school uh was was really interesting um i you know i wouldn't have necessarily thought about it that way unless you pointed it out but i'm sure that having that kind of like greater purpose or or greater meaning or drive um especially for something as mentally grueling as that is a you know f- fantastic motivator or, or reason to keep you going kind of like when you're at mile 80 and really suffering yeah. as opposed to just doing it for the uh you know self-gratification or achievement aspect of it i suppose as your career progressed in, in running these events. Um, how did that, how did that play into it? Like, did you feel like you still had purpose as you got deeper and deeper into these extreme distance runs or did that kind of start to wane? It, it definitely waned, waxed and waned, um, for sure. And that, and you'll see that like in my performance and everything like that, you know, whether or not I was able to find purpose or whether I defined, um, I would often make the mistakes such as, uh, such as I made it the, so there's this race called the hurt 100, the Hawaiian ultra running, uh, ultra running team hurt, um, the hurt 100 mile over in Hawaii. And it's a, it's a pretty brutal course, uh, out on Oahu with uh, about 25,000 feet of climbing that just goes up and down the mountains in the center of the Island there. And, um, tons and tons of like more routes than any other course in the world pretty much. And, uh, and so you're just kind of climbing, climbing up and down tree routes for, you know, hundred miles. And, uh, and the first time that I went there, man, I didn't go there with, I went there with, I had a sort of curiosity of sort of, Ooh, what's this race about? What's this all going to be about? This is exciting. Um, and I didn't go there to, I want to say 2013 was my first time there as a result of that. Um, I had this sort of curiosity and everything like that. And well, how, how well can I do at this event? I've done, I've done these other ones and stuff like that. How well can I do at the hurt 100? And, um, and I finished third place there. Um, and, and one of the, faster times ish on the course and uh was second behind a guy who set the course record that or sorry third place behind a guy who set the course record and another really good runner and um and then i went back there the next year um 
really with a narrow margin of purpose. And this is where I've been screwed in the past uh, and why I try to like talk about this with a lot of the athletes that I coach about high risk, high reward um, sort of environments like this or high risk, high reward purposes and high risk, high reward wise. Um, and what I'm getting at there is essentially I went back with like, okay, I want the course record and I want to win. Those are the two things that I want out of this. And then it was apparent within the first, uh, you know, 30 miles of the race that, okay, uh, course record might not be happening. I might be able to win this thing, but a course record isn't happening based on the pace that I'm moving. I'm feeling like crud right now. I'm starting to slow down. I was on course record pace. Now I'm slowing down. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And so then that I very quickly slipped outside of that narrow margin of success and then completely lost all motivation. I still finished the hundred miler, but, but I, I essentially mentally quit at mile like 30 and just dragged myself another 70 miles because I was too ashamed at that time in my life to uh, handle what's called a DNF or a did not finish. Um, and so I, you know, dragged my butt to the, again, the hard thing there would have been to take a DNF. Um, but, uh, but I finished the hundred miler instead. So yeah. Um, that's certainly been a time that I've, I've had a narrow margin, um, of purpose. And that reminds me of one other time, uh, where I did a race out in the United Kingdom called Dragon's Back, uh, where same thing that was a, a sort of 330 kilometer five day stage race where a narrow margin of success that I set up for myself was I'd like to win this thing or I'd like to place top three. And it was apparent again, after the first two or three days of racing that I was outside of the top three, that unless something, something of a miracle happened or some of the top guys dropped that I was not going to make it in the top three and just sort of lost my, I remember calling my wife at the, at the end of the, uh, the fifth day, finally, after the race had finished and I, I ended up in sixth place. And I remember calling her crying on the phone of just like, what, why did I do this? Why was I out here? Why did I travel all the way to the UK? Why did I just run, you know, 250? I had no reason to be here at all. Uh, and just really, really kind of lost. Um, dialectically though, there's been other races that I've had like Tour de Giants where, where I've had just such a sense of full purpose in being and all of that. So yeah, it's, um, de definitely waxed and waned throughout my career. No, I, there's a lot to unpack there, which I'm excited to talk about. Um, I think that like, there's a lot of interesting, you know, mental maturity that you've obviously accumulated over this. And part of me wonders if, if, uh, like, obviously you're, you're studying this. Um, and so that's probably part of it. And part of me wonders too, if it's all those long hours kind of by yourself, <laughs> just suffering with nothing but your thoughts that helps kind of like elucidate some of these things. Um, but the first thing I'll touch on is that you mentioned, uh, for the hurt 100 that you had tw 25,000 feet of elevation gain. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the, one that's, of the bigger races insane. in terms of, in terms of elevation gain. Um, Tour de Giants, to, to put that in uh, context, has about 80,000 to 100,000 feet of elevation gain uh, over 205 miles. Uh, Barkley Marathons has between 55 to 60,000 feet of elevation gain. I think if you hike Mount Charleston from the steepest way up, it's about 4,000 feet of elevation gain, maybe. So, uh, so yeah, there's a, it's a lot of Mount Charlestons. But. So, yeah, 20 of them if you're doing exactly. that Tour de Giants. Yep. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's absolutely crazy because, like, it's, um, you know, my, the listeners probably I'm sure don't care about hearing it, but it's like, I do a lot of rock climbing and things for my sport hobby, whatever now. So it obviously, it involves a lot of like hiking up lots of elevation gain and usually with a decent amount of weight on your back. So that adds a component, but it's like, if I have a day where I climb 8,000 feet in elevation, I'm like buried, you know what I mean? That's a big so day. I can't, That's a huge day. Yeah. yeah. But I can't imagine uh, doing 80,000 feet of elevation gain yeah. or, or even 25,000 feet. That's crazy. Um, like really impressive. Um, 
but the, I, you know, and, and that's just an aside, but I think the more interesting component of the, the stuff you just told us was that you had, you kind of like set your, it's almost like you're setting yourself up for failure as an athlete by defining your kind of like terms of acceptable success into like such a narrow margin. Um, am I, am I hearing that accurately? Oh, a- a- absolutely. Which, which is 100% why I, um, you know, I 100% probably did not invent this. This is probably backed in some sort of research somewhere. I call it the inverse pyramid. There are maybe other sports psychologists that call it something different, but you know, a lot of people talk about going into races. They talk about, Hey, what's your A goal? What's your B goal? What's your C goal? And they'll set up like, okay, yeah, my A goal is to, is to win the race. My B goal, uh, I'd like to be sub 24 hours in my, in my C goal. I just like to finish. So if you set it up like that, you lose as you go. And what I mean by that is, is as the race progresses, you lose the ability, you either lose or you gain the ability to, to win. And then, and then you settle, then, then you have to go through this process of psychologically letting go and psychologically settling for less, which the human mind does not like doing, especially in Western America, Western United States. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, and so then you've got to settle for less. Now you're settling for 24 hours and oh, the, the window for 24 hours went out, went out the window. Okay. Now you have to psychologically settle for less. And now I'm settling for, oh, I'm just settling for a finish. That's lame. Um, so if you flip that and, and you make your A, B and C goals, but you, then you flip that upside down you say, okay, my first goal is to finish. Once I know at mile 60 that I can secure a finish, then I'm going to pull my head out of the sand and I'm going to look and see what time I'm at. Oh, I'm, you know, mile 60 and I did that in, uh, 11 hours. Okay. Looks like I can finish in sub 24 hours. Okay, cool. Uh, at mile 85, I'm going to pull my head out of the sand again and I'm gonna look around and see, okay, Hey, what place am I in? Oh, I'm in third place. Oh, second place and first place are only 20 minutes up. I feel pretty good right now. Mm, I think I can maybe win this race. And so here you're winning as you go along. If you flip that pyramid, so come up with your goals, a, B and C, and then flip them upside down. Um, and that's, that's a big piece of advice that I recommend at least for expanding and keeping a wider, uh, definition of success for yourself at these events, which is, which is really, really critical, uh, especially for the hundred milers. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, especially for people like me or, or other listeners who are much more like weekend warriors and not professional athletes or anything like that, like setting yourself up for like, Hey, here's the achievable goal. And then if things go well, then maybe I'll strive for something more, but I'm, you know, going expecting that I'm going to hit something achievable and then maybe things go well and I can do something, you know, really out there. Um, when you're, I, I guess like, how does that reflect on the training component, right? When you're inverting these goals and instead of training with the goal going to be, Hey, I'm going to, I want to win this race. Mm. If that's not the primary goal, what becomes your primary training motivation? Yeah. So in, in training, you talk about, uh, so in sports psychology, they talk about task orientation and ego orientation. Ego orientation is going to be this stuff. Like I want to be better than John. I want to win the race. I want to, anything that ego would be stoked or happy with, you know, um, task orientation is I want to get better at this uh, because I want to beat my best. I want to, I want to get a PR in this. Um, I'd like to get better at uh, my cadence. I'd like to improve my, uh, last kilometer of the 5k i'd like to so they're very task specific uh sort of non-ego oriented goals um so you have task oriented ego oriented so with that um it was can you rephrase your original question again so yeah instead of like training specifically like if you most of the people i know that that are competing in endurance sports or something in general like 
they're going to be training for a specific event, right? And none of yep. the people that I'm close with are going to be winning these events. But I'd imagine that if you were of a high caliber, that you'd say like, I'm going to train for, you know, whatever, the right. Barkley Marathon or the New right. York Marathon or whatever. And I have this like really audacious goal and that is the point, right? Maybe mm-hmm. I want to win it. Mm-hmm. I want to win this mm-hmm. event. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're, if you're subscribing to what you're saying, which I agree with, which is like, yeah. hey, like when you're structuring these goals, you should say, hey, my goal is not to win. That's like the third mm. goal. The first goal is just to finish or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when you're planning out your training, um, what then becomes like the motivator or the structure of the training? Like, how do you yeah. get there? You know, I yeah. know for me, right? Yeah. Like for my, for my athletic pursuits, I have, I have some pretty extreme goals, right? That may never yeah. materialize. I mean, <clears throat> not talented enough or not genetically gifted enough or too old or whatever. Sure. But I still have them. And they're, they're extreme enough for me that like, there's no time frame on them. They may never occur, yeah. but like if I, if they happen within five or 10 years, I'd be super happy about that. Okay. But so like when I'm structuring my training, my goal is just to make incremental progress. And it's like, I've, I've, I've come to a place where it's like, I can't really even put, I can't even really put benchmarks on the progress I'm going to achieve. It's kind of like, Hey, here's my winter right. training block and I'm going to stick to it. And like whatever progress I achieve, I'm going to have to be happy with that because there's no way to force it. Um, yeah. but so like I kind of let my progress be much more like ephemeral and what I'm trying to get, but like you as a coach or a competitive athlete and running as a sport is much more measurable in terms of like where you're at. Right. Um, <clears throat> how would you typically structure like, Hey, I'm going to spend the next year training. I'm going to be training for this event. But if the goal isn't to win, what are you measuring or striving for along the way to set yourself up for success? Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting from from a psychological sense uh, in terms of that inverse pyramid. And like, say we flip that pyramid upside down, but then uh, just finishing doesn't resonate with the person enough to actually hit a six month block of training. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, like, okay, during race day, sure, I can find enough motivation to uh, conjure up to you know be stoked about just finishing. Um, but six months out, let's say nine months out, often even 12 months out, a, a person who I'm training, um, is going to come to me and at, idealistically a, a client comes to me at least 12 months out or something like that and says, Hey, I want to do a hundred mile. Or sometimes they come even two months out and they're like, Hey, I want to try for a hundred mile. And I'm like, uh, um, but, um, so they come to me 12 months out that, uh, that, that goal has to resonate. Again, we go back to purpose and that whole, you know, Nick running around the high school track or whatever it is, what's going to resonate with that athlete that's going to get them. It's either going to cause, uh, idealistically from a psychology sense, I really try not to motivate by fear. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I do, I've used that phrase before of what's going to scare the crap out of you enough where you, where you wake up at six in the morning, like, oh my gosh, this goal is coming and it's going to totally crush me. Um, you know, is, is it scary enough where it wakes them up? Is it, or, or, you know, um, or is it, or is it so, and and there's, and there's a specific blend of that too, where like, if it's too audacious, if it's too kind of like you were saying in a five to 10 year goal range, if it's too extreme that, you know, Oh, I want to finish the Barkley marathons. Is that too far out of their reality where it doesn't even scare them because it's so far beyond their current reality that like, well, that's never going to happen. So I'm not even thinking about that. Um, and so you want it like realistically, scary enough. Uh, so sort of a perfect blend of that. Um, and then, um, yeah, in terms of the, so, so let's say this individual wants to, um, you know, comes to me and, Hey, you know, I really do want to win this. I'd really like to win this 50 K, uh, five months out from now. Um, I would, I would still train them to win that 50 K. I would, as we go along, 
Um, you know, that would be the objective goal. I would, I would really focus and align us with a lot of process goals. A lot of what do we have in our control? The, the essential, how you distill a process versus objective goal is just, uh, you know, what, what can we control? What is in our control? What is out of our control? Basically the, uh, the distilled version of the serenity prayer essentially. And, uh, and in our control, you know, is, uh, mile times, uh, your psychological well-being during this run, um, your pace, when you, when you choose to slow down, that kind of a thing. Um, and so we're really going to focus on a lot of those process, uh, goals and everything like that as we work towards the 50 K. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think, I think I'm tapping into the answer to your question there. It's a good question. No, I think you, I think you've largely answered it. Um, and, and I think that component of, of setting a goal, I, I like that idea of setting a goal that's like realistically scary enough. Right. Because if, if you, if you took a guy like me, who's got very light background in running and I said, Hey, I want to run a hundred miler. Like it, to me, it's like, yeah, right. Like that's so far away. It's not even realistic. Yeah. But if you said, Hey, you know, my goal is to run a marathon in three months, like, and, and not just, I could probably finish a marathon now, but to run like a reasonable marathon in mm-hmm. three months, um, like that's, like, I know I could do it, but it, it's scary enough to where I'd be like, I really am going to have to buckle down and make this yeah. happen. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly the advice. feeling that you want to get. Is that like, Ooh, yeah, I, I could do that. I don't want to yeah. do that, but Ooh, Ooh. Yeah. That's kind of, that's kind of like, and, and also, yeah, for sure. And, and also kind of like the fallback being that if you know that it's possible and so that if you, if you, if you're failing, it's you, it's on you because you didn't do enough as opposed mm-hmm. to picking something where it's like, well, if I fail, it's just because it was never practical, you know? Right, right, right. Oh, this goal is just too ridiculous or whatever. Yeah. You take a sense of, um, there's a sense of agency and a sense of, and, and, and less of a sense of helplessness of just like, Oh, the goal was just yeah. too ridiculous. Oh, Barclay's just too hard, but you know, choose something you can actually do. And, uh, and all of a sudden the, the responsibility is on you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess when you're working with your athletes too, and you're setting up kind of like these inverse pyramid goals and it comes to like race day, right? Um, like you mentioned your experience running the hurt, um, and you knew 30 miles in that it wasn't going to go the way you wanted to. Um, how do you prepare athletes to, to deal with that or to deal with going after kind of like secondary or tertiary goals? Mm. So that's where like I, I borrowed deeply from, uh, I, I would, I would hope that we've gone through it before, uh, and either a pre-race phone call or something like that. And, uh, I borrow heavily from, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy there. There's a specific skill they use called reframing, uh, cognitive reframing, which is just essentially, essentially that it's, it's that component that helps you reframe and focus on a, on a secondary or tertiary goal. Um, but the hardest piece of that is accepting, um, what is it? The acronym goes except, yeah, that's what it is. It's except let it go do your best. There's no acronym in that. I guess it would be a L B, but, um, Anyways, uh, except that this has happened, uh, I've, I've come along and I'm going to finish beyond 24 hours. The 24 hours just clicked by. Okay. So I'm not at the finish line. 24 hours is gone, except that that's happened. Let it go. Okay. So what were my expectations? What were my, what were my thoughts? What were my, everything that was going to be, um, grieve that, let it go, let out a scream, let out a yell, let out a grunt, let out a, a noise from above the waist. And, um, let that, let that go. And then, um, do your best. That's where the reframing part comes in. That's where like, now we're aiming for the tertiary goal there of, okay, that happened. Shrug my shoulders, let it go and do my best with what I have left. Can I, 
can I do my best with what I have left? And, and that's really where my strongest athletes, uh, I had some, uh, just, just, uh, at the Haviland hundred, uh, about three, three weeks ago now, um, who, who continually were able to use that skill again and again, uh, with reframing as expectations sort of shifted and sorted their way out, um, as, as they do. And in a hundred milers, very, uh, the longer you get in these distances, 50 Ks, 50 milers, hundred milers, 200 milers, um, the longer you get, the more variables there are. And so there's sort of like a piece of art where like, it, like you can generally say like, I'm going to paint a, I'm going to paint some trees by a lake, but like, I, I know, I don't, I'm not an artist, but, uh, you know, for, for some, it sort of, you know, takes shape as, as you begin painting and others, you know, know exactly what it's going to look like, but very seldom could I tell you as a coach, um, or, or an athlete, you know, exactly. I've, I've one athlete who I coach who does 200 milers, who, who does them exactly as he says he's going to do them. And they almost work out exactly to plan, but he's a freak. Um, and, um, everyone else falls in this boat of, you know, it's kind of going to take its own, its own shape and you're going to have to do all these cognitive reframes, um, as, as you go there and really, uh, letting, letting go as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think that's interesting and, and, uh, we can't all be freaks, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I, I often wonder that like when we're, when I'm looking at like these athletes that have achieved amazing things, it's like you can plan and train and everything can go, you know, as well as you want it to. But sometimes a lot of things are just outside of your control. And it's like, whether you're looking, when you're looking at any fantastic achievement in any medium, like the thing that always kind of like haunts me a little bit is like how much of what we're staring at is just survivorship bias and how much, people worked just as hard or tried just as hard and thing and the cards just didn't fall in their favor. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is, it is such an interesting thing. Yeah. And that, that, that's exactly what I think when I think back to like my Barkley finish in 2013, you know, it's like a survivorship bias totally where I'm like Jared Campbell, who, uh, who went on to finish, he's finished Barkley three times. So he's the most, uh, has the highest amount of finishes at Barkley out of, out of anyone in the world and, um, phenomenal athlete. And he was ahead of, uh, both uh, myself and Travis Wildeboer the, the year that him and I finished. And, uh, and he got lost like somewhere on loop two or whatever it was and, and sort of survivorship bias there. Like, you know, uh, myself and Travis didn't get lost because we were moving so slow that we didn't get stuck in the same fog cloud that he got stuck in. And, um, and as a result, we were able to get through that flawlessly, whereas he got lost in that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. Like, you know, had he not gotten lost there, well then, yeah, we would have been totally smoked at that race and I wouldn't have won Barkley 2013. Um, and it's almost this like, um, Jason Coop has this really nice quote that, that I like remembering for ultra marathons. It's not about what happened. It's about what didn't happen. Um, and that's sort of what leads to success at ultras. And that's all these, you know, you didn't develop blisters. You didn't get stomach issues. You didn't uh, slow down. You didn't have an explosion, uh, a really bad bonk. You didn't blank, you know? Um, and, and, and the fact that those didn't happen resulted in success. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. I like that a lot. Um, and I mean, briefly, while we were prepping for the interview, you mentioned that you've had some like plenty of stuff that you've had to overcome, including heart surgery. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So that was sort of my, my foray into both, um, uh, both my, my mental health journey and, uh, and my, and my cycle, uh, or, or my, my physiological well-being journey. So I had, uh, when I finished Barkley in 2013, I finished and, you know, not very intelligently three days later did a, did a, a trail marathon. Um, and after that, you know, I was completely smoked and totally dead, had just ran Barkley and had just ran this, this trail marathon and was having a hard time breathing and was like, ah, ah. 
uh, getting out of bed and everything like that and just breathing really heavy and funky and and my chest felt kind of weird and so I decided to go to the doctor and they uh, they let me know hey you've got a you've got a bicuspid uh, aortic valve um, so uh, for those watching the video or those who are going to watch a video a bicuspid opens like that uh, a tricuspid uh, opens like that so the leaflet fully opens versus a bicuspid just partially opens um, so with that partial opening of a bicuspid valve uh, I was explained in some way or another that uh, essentially you have a higher um, pressure gradient that travels through a bicuspid valve as a result of that you can get uh, aneurysms along your upper aortic wall of your heart. And that's exactly what I had growing was a, was an aneurysm. Um, and so those, when they burst, uh, essentially is a big hole in your heart, you could bleed out internally and die. Um, so I had a, your normal aortic, aortic wall is supposed to be 3.3 centimeters or 3.3 millimeters. Mine was 4.2 millimeters at the time. Um, so bigger, but not needing surgery yet. I didn't have insurance. Uh, in 2014 to like 2016. So I just largely was like, meh, I'm young, I'm good. My heart's fine. And then, and then, uh, got insurance finally and everything like that and decided to get it checked out again in 2017. And the aneurysm had grown from 4.3 to about 5.1 centimeters, at which point the doctor was like, eh, you're kind of like a ticking time bomb. You could probably do another hundred mile or two, but like, I don't know if you'll blow up. I don't know how hard those are on you. And, um, yeah, uh, you should probably get operated on. And, uh, and then, so it was, uh, 2018 that I had, a um, open heart surgery and had a, uh, luckily they didn't have to touch my valve. Um, and so I just had a Dacron tube put where that, uh, the aneurysm taken out and then, uh, what's essentially like a very fancy plastic tube, um, put where that aneurysm was. And then I had pericarditis, which, uh, people might be a little bit more familiar with following COVID these days. Um, but which is inflammation of the, the sac that surrounds your heart. I had recurrent pericarditis for about six months following open heart surgery, which was pretty annoying. Um, just made it so I couldn't, I couldn't really restart running or anything like that. Cause it just felt like my heart was just shaking around in my chest. Um, and yeah, cautions with that essentially put the kibash on my, uh, running career, my professional running career, uh, following 2018 until, pretty much this year, um, where, where I've kind of finally come back after doing some, finally, you know, experimenting around with 50 K's and stuff like that in, uh, 2018 to 2021. Um, uh, but this year has been the first year where I, where I've made my return to hundred. I did my first hundred miler back since heart surgery, uh, in August and placed second there. And then, uh, just did world's toughest mother this last weekend and placed, uh, seventh, seventh overall there, uh, six male, uh, which was, which is awesome. So yeah, glad to, kind of be back. Um, I'm tenuous and kind of scared. I have a cardiology appointment, my echocardiogram, my yearly one uh, coming up in January. Um, kind of always scared to go to those and I'm always feeling like they're going to be like, nope, you shouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I'm glad you're okay and, and that you're recovering well and congrats on the, the races and the finishes. That's amazing. Um, and like, you know, hopefully all's well and you have a long productive career ahead of you. But I suppose as someone who's spent so much time, you know, thinking about the psychological component of athletics and even someone that seems relatively in tune with your own self-worth and how this all intertwines, um, what, what was it like? I, I'm sure when you first found out that this was going on, the thought had to cross your mind that like, oh, I'm never going to be able to run again. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, at the time, uh, that it happened, man, I really hadn't, you know, no, I, I, I must have because in 2017, about 
two months before I had heart surgery, uh, I'd been dealing with a chronic knee injury for about the past year. And so my performances had been subpar. I'd done that dragon's back race that I talked about and finished, you know, crying and calling my wife and saying, you know, what was the point? What was the purpose of any of this? Um, that was really my last big experience at an ultra before having that, you know, sort of knee injury that took me out the rest of the year. And, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, to keep it long story short or whatever in this, I, I was diagnosed in 2018, uh, shortly after heart surgery, um, about, about three months after heart surgery, I went and I got psychological testing, um, done. So professional psychological testing done up in Washington and, uh, and came back with results that indicated, you know, I had some, I had, I had a little bit of a complex person, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I had a little bit of borderline personality disorder. I had a little bit of ADHD and a little bit of OCD. So a little nice mix of some, some fun acronyms there. And, um, yeah, with that, unfortunately, I'd really tied a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of my self-worth and my self-identity to running and, and Nick, you know, I wasn't Nick, the coach, I wasn't Nick, the husband, I wasn't Nick anything else but Nick the runner. And that's who I was essentially. And now that was gone and I couldn't revalidate that. I couldn't reinstate that through running and accomplishing things and winning a hundred miler. I wasn't Nick, the guy who just does a hundred miler. No, I was Nick, the guy who does the world's most difficult races. Um, and I couldn't be that. And, and that was devastating for me. And so then I really struggled to find worth. Uh, my wife and I at the time, you know, would have arguments, um, and small arguments about like dumb, you know, your you normal dumb couples bickering thing or something like that or whatever it was, but it would lead me to such a devastating feeling of shame and worthlessness because I no longer had that backbone, backbone of, you know, well, I'm Nick the ultra runner who does hundred milers. I don't care that I didn't get the right, uh, T for you. Um, you know, uh, and it would be like, wow, I'm such a worthless, terrible husband that I didn't get you the right T. I don't deserve to live. And it would literally get that bad where, where, you know, the, the thoughts where I'd, I'd you know, question my life and, and all that. And, um, went, went down that avenue for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard thing to deal with. And, and I mean, it's like really valuable for everyone listening or for people that can have exposure to kind of like the pitfalls and those perspectives in retrospect, but I'm sure it was quite difficult to go through at the time. I mean, I've had plenty of things in my life where I was very accomplishment driven and, um, you know, sometimes things worked out and I accomplished things and then realized those accomplishments were quite hollow on the backside of it, or sometimes mm -hmm. it didn't work out and that had its own own issues interplaying there. Um, but, it, but I think that that ability to step back and say that your self-worth is multifaceted and not tied to like one specific domain um, yeah. is a key component of, of setting yourself up for like a healthy life. I'm, I, I, I'm curious, like I, I mean, and I'm not asking you for an answer because I'm sure one doesn't necessarily exist, but oh, I, I, I don't, I wonder if it makes for the most competitive athlete, you know what I mean? Like maybe the most competitive athlete needs that completely <laughs> focused, all their self-worth is tied only in the accomplishments and maybe like a more balanced person couldn't achieve those, those, that, uh, that's like crazy outlier. You, things. You, you, you're nailing it like precisely what I've been wanting to do my thesis for. And, uh, and, and my master's degree here has been wanting to kind of study exactly that. Like, do you need to be the kind of, uh, excuse my language, but the kind of asshole who's like going up Mount Everest and is like, do or die. I'm going to the top of Mount Everest. Y'all can, y'all can stay back here. I'm going into the storm and getting to the top of this mountain. Cause it's, it's, it's what I am. It's what I'm worth. My worth is at the top of that mountain. I'm going into the storm. And does it take that to be the top of the top of the best of the best? Or does it, you know, can you be this, you know, even keeled, 
uh, self-compassionate, self-loving uh, athlete. Um, and that's, that's really the, you know, this, this athlete who's on top of Mount Everest and says, Hey, there's a storm blowing up here. Uh, you know, we'll try it next year. Sorry, this didn't work guys. Um, and, uh, can that athlete be the best? And really my mission and my, my goal at going back to world's toughest mutter, um, where I had my best performance that I've ever had at that race, uh, this past weekend, I was self-compassionate. I was kind. I was easy and loving with myself. I was all of the things that I never was to myself back in 2014, 2015, 2016, when I did this race with a huge ego and a huge amount of expectation and a very much exactly like, you know, you win this race, Nick, come on, you win this thing or whatever it is. And narrow goal, narrow thing. You, you beat all these other people. You deserve to win this. And, uh, and, and it was just like, no, I love you, Nick. You're doing so great. You're doing so well. You're so strong right now. Oh, uh, you're looking so good. Just keep strong. Keep in all these little like things that you would think like, okay, well, if you tell yourself that, dude, that guy's not tough. But, uh, but I was, I was tough. Um, and, um, yeah, that's really kind of my, uh, my mission as, as, as I kind of get back into, into ultra running and everything like that. It is exactly looking at that question hunter is just like, can I do the things that I used to do, but be a hell of a lot kinder and more compassionate and loving with myself? That's no, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm excited to see what you find out in your studies. Um, cause it's like anecdotally, you do see a lot of the people that do achieve the great things tend to have, uh, deep, you know, character flaws or issues and they yeah. kind of, you know, people kind of brush them to the side because of the amazing things they're doing. But right. it does seem like, uh, oftentimes that that's what happens. And like, you know, talking back about the survivorship bias, um, component of it, it's like, I do wonder if like, obviously along the way, it's like, you notice the people that's that are you know to 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 rephrase what you said that are assholes but but achieve these great things you're like well you know what i mean maybe that's how it works out but yeah. you don't see all the assholes that didn't achieve it and now they're just right. assholes right right, right, right. so um yeah. I, I do wonder like uh, it'll be fascinating to see like kind of where that balance point is and if you're able to um find examples of athletes performing at like you said the top of the top the best of the best that have that balance and didn't yeah. have to kind of like sacrifice everything to achieve those goals. Um, yeah. that'll be a fascinating thing. And I mean, you're, you're doing it right now, obviously, you know, having some of the best performances of your life in a much more balanced state. So that's awesome to see. Yeah. Now I can think of, uh, my, my wife is one of the main people that comes to mind in terms of individuals who've achieved this, who, who can, who can be at the top of the sport. And she's absolutely at the top of the sport right now in terms of ultra running and sky running and everything like that. She's killing it. And, um, you know, has that, uh, I've tested her in a confidence inventory. I've tested her in several, you know, sports psychology tests and stuff like that. And her self-talk is flawless. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Her confidence is through the roof, um, and, and everything like that. And, um, yeah, she, she's kind of an enigma to me. Um, but, uh, just, uh, just one of those people who, who absolutely just, uh, you know, I'm losing my train of thought exactly, but, 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 but can just you know, go out there and crush it and everything like that. So, yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And and who knows, maybe you'll be pioneering a new like psychological model for, for champions. Right. Oh, uh, I'd love to. Like, yeah. Here you can, you can take the title now. No, no copyright <laughs> by Nicodemus. You don't have go. to be an asshole to be a winner. There we go. All right. I like it. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that's awesome, man. Well, Nicodemus, it has been uh, great chatting with you today. Um, congrats on the, the comeback from the heart surgery I'm super excited to see what you do with both your um, psychology studies and your athletic achievements as time goes on. Um, if 
if our listeners want to follow along with the, the things you're doing, your athletic achievements or your coaching or your uh, psychology stuff, where, where should they find you? Yep. So we are uh, lightfootcoaching.org. Um, that's Lightfoot, like Gordon Lightfoot, the singer, uh, Lightfoot coach, coach, lightfootcoaching.org. Um, and then we're at lightfootcoaching on Instagram. And then I'm at ultra Demus, uh, ultra U-L-T-R-A-D-E-M-U-S uh, on Instagram as well. So yeah, follow me on any of those channels. Awesome. Well, thank you again for the time today. I'm sure everyone will uh, hopefully learn a lot. I know I have. And yeah, uh, yeah we'll uh, we'll keep tabs on you and, and hopefully have you back soon. Thank you so much for having me on.